Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. After decades of a dwindling salmon population and endless litigation, an Idaho congressman has unveiled a concept to address the problem. But the plan has an upstream battle before it becomes reality. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, journalist Rocky Barker and Congressman Mike Simpson join me to discuss Simpson's wide-ranging concept to save salmon in the Pacific Northwest. But first, Idaho is one of just seven states that has no sales tax exemption or lower rate on groceries. While the state does offer an annual grocery tax rebate, some lawmakers have been trying for years to get a full repeal on Idaho's grocery tax. And in 2017, legislation got to then-Governor Butch Otter desk. Otter vetoed that bill, but Governor Brad Little has signaled he is open to a grocery tax repeal. Representative Ron Nate has written the latest proposal to do so, and he joined me on Friday morning to discuss his efforts to get a hearing. Thanks so much for joining us today, Representative Nate. Can you tell me how your grocery tax proposal is any different than what we've seen in the many legislative sessions this has come up before? Well, there's really not much difference to it. It would uh, take the tax off all groceries according to the SNAP definition, which is already used for welfare recipients when they buy groceries. So it's no big leap for grocery stores to be able to just apply that uh, um, exemption to all groceries. And um, the one difference I would, I, I would say this year is that we have the ability to use the tax relief fund, which has been built up from, from the internet sales tax, which is dedicated only for tax relief. Utilizing that makes it so that we can do a grocery tax repeal without uh, really hardly affecting the general fund in the state. We can meet all of our other budget priorities, including education and healthcare and infrastructure needs and uh, still uh, provide the tax relief that a lot of hardworking families and businesses need. What are you hearing from leadership about your proposal? Uh, they are hesitant to, uh, to bring it forward, which is surprising to me because it has broad support here in the legislature as a body. It has broad, broad support across the state as well. So it's a little frustrating that one or two or, or three leaders here in the House get to dictate tax policy for the entire state when it's really supposed to be more of a representative government. Really, constitutionally, there's only one individual in the state that has veto power. But it doesn't work that way here in the House. You know, we have one committee chairman, probably at the direction of leadership, holding up on this, uh, on this great tax, um, tax relief. We've passed it before with super majorities. It got vetoed by Governor Otter before. But this governor, Governor Little, to his credit, has said that he would sign grocery tax repeal if it got to, its, got to his desk. And there's only one roadblock to that right now. 
You know, you wrote in a newsletter to your constituents that grocery tax cuts aren't the only tax cuts that Idaho could afford right now because of the budget surplus that we have. You know, you sit on the Joint Finance and Appropriations Committee. In your mind, is there any room for strategic investments in that budget as well? Absolutely. The, the update just a few days ago was that we have 662.5 million dollars of surplus. And you know, for perspective, that is huge compared to the budget. Our whole budget is $4 billion. So 662 million dollars is, is a great surplus. We, could, we can easily manage this grocery tax repeal, which comes to about $43 million, and still have hundreds of millions of dollars for those priorities, like fixing roads and bridges, making sure our education is fully funded, and doing other tax relief, like income tax cuts, uh, property tax cuts, those should all be on the table. We have much more with Representative Nate online, including why he and other lawmakers are unhappy with Boise State University and its budget. You'll find a link to the Idaho Reports YouTube channel on our website, idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. And while you're there, hit subscribe. This week, House members debated a bill that would make it a felony to deliver more than two absentee ballots to the post office or county. House Majority Leader Mike Moyle, who sponsored the legislation, said Idaho currently doesn't have a problem with ballot harvesting, but he was concerned about unverified rumors on social media about the practice in other states. His proposal drew opposition from Democrats and Republicans alike. I will stand here and confess before you all, it has happened in Idaho because I've done it. I have knocked on people's doors shortly before the election, and on a few instances, there was an elderly person who couldn't drive. They were concerned about whether their ballot was going to arrive in time by the mail. And they said, here, could you drop this off for me? Everything that should be illegal is already illegal. It's illegal to take somebody's ballot out of their mailbox and steal it or destroy it or alter their votes or throw it out or fill out their ballot for them. I mean, any of the things that should be illegal are already felonies under Idaho law. Um, what this would do is criminalize delivering somebody's ballot at their request. Because you live 20 miles out of town, what do you think you do when you have to take an errand into town? Do mom and dad go? Do you think we get in the, in the rig and we're going to take a fun trip? No, you send your kid. Every time you send your kid. Why did we use the Dropbox? Because we didn't have 100% faith that mail was going to work. And I think there's a lot of folks in this room that understand that. I get that it's an option, but there's some serious comfort to dropping that at the courthouse, handing it over, and knowing that they have received your ballot. So with this legislation, my daughter's a felon. I was thinking about the good lady from 18. Did somebody pay her to deliver those votes? Do you know? Did she vote for them? Did they give them an empty ballot? Do you know? I was thinking about the lady from 23. Sounds like concurrent loss. You can just have the lady from 18 deliver the votes for her. I don't want that. And so you have to make two trips to the post office. I understand that concern. But you know what? Voting shouldn't be easy. You could put it in the post office box and not have to drive to town. This bill needs to pass to protect the votes in Idaho, in my opinion. Moyle asked lawmakers to let him amend the bill. On the Idaho Reports podcast this week, we have an interview discussing claims of voter fraud and other issues surrounding the 2020 election with Associate Professor Benjamin Cover from the University of Idaho College of Law. You can find the Idaho Reports podcast on all major podcast players. Early Sunday, Congressman Mike Simpson unveiled a damn ambitious proposal to save salmon. 
The effort includes removing four dams in eastern Washington, replacing power generated from those dams, and locking in existing dams that generate more than five megawatts of power in the Columbia, Snake, and Willamette basins. The $33.5 billion proposal includes money for watershed partnerships, agriculture, economic development, and much more. Journalist and author Rocky Barker has been following efforts to save salmon for years and joined me on Thursday to discuss the details of Simpson's proposal. This is a, a complex proposal. At the end of the day, what problems is it trying to solve? The main thing is we've been fighting over the salmon for 30 years and they've been in court since, frankly, Idaho started this in, in court back in 1994, Governor Anderson. And, uh, and they've won, the salmon advocates have won in court every single time because the federal agencies, you know, they've spent a lot of money, $17 billion or more, uh, trying to meet the court requirements uh, for the salmon that uh, once there were uh, eight to 16 million salmon that came up the Columbia, a third of those came up the snake and they've been endangered since the early 90s. I think in uh, uh, 2019, only uh, less than 4,000 spring, uh, Snake River Spring Chinook came back to Idaho. So they're, near, they're heading towards extinction despite this uh, world-class fish passion center on the eight dams between Idaho and the ocean. So there's been for I would say 20 years the states and the tribal scientists have had a consensus that the only that the best way to fi solve this problem was to take out these four dams. The people who have depended on these dams, the uh, wheat farmers who ship uh, the, uh, through on the barges, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, the dams produce about. Uh, 11 to 1200 uh, megawatts of power enough for Seattle, but then in a short period of time when there's a, uh, we have a shortage or we have a cold snap or something, they can produce as much as 3000 megawatts. And that's what's gonna be replaced is that uh, full power. So, uh, Wait, right, let, let, let's talk about that because if, if removing the dams were, an uncontroversial or inexpensive project, a, an inexpensive solution, then this would have happened when it was first proposed. That's not the case, but we're, we're looking at potential ripple effects on some of these Eastern Washington communities. Um, so what problems might this cause? Well, see, this is the thing that's, uh, uh, Representative Simpson has really, he spent more than two years putting this together. And he actually has looked at every one of the unintended consequences. Now, of course, there are gonna be things that come up. Um, the, 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 always the fear has been that this would uh, hurt uh, the, the economies of Lewiston and Eastern Washington uh, because perhaps uh, they couldn't ship as cheaply on, uh, on rail and uh, in trucks. And one of the things that the opponents even now say is, you know, all the trucks and rail that it's going to take are going to uh, actually cause uh, more greenhouse gases. 
And so that's one of the things that's still out there that uh, might be a problem. But other things that would be, a lot of that power is gonna come from uh, uh, wind and solar. And so that's gonna reduce, that's gonna be uh, uh, low, uh, uh, low carbon. And one of the way, one of the things they're at least talking about is, uh, uh, is nuclear power. So when you look at all of the economic uh, parts of this package, it, it's, you know, it's immense for these communities. We have much more with Rocky online. You'll find our entire conversation on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. Again, you can find that link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. On Friday, Congressman Simpson joined me to discuss how he plans to accomplish this ambitious proposal. Thank you so much for joining us today, Congressman Simpson. Can you tell me about the lead up to this proposal? Because this isn't something that you came up with just overnight. No, it's a very complex and, uh, and detailed uh, proposal. We have, uh, what we've released so far is just a concept that has various ideas in it and what we might be able to do uh, to both provide certainty for uh, communities, for energy production, for, uh, for agriculture uh, in this proposal. And we've had, uh, we've been working for three years. Uh, we've had uh, over 300 meetings with stakeholder groups, individuals, uh, and so forth, uh, trying trying to look at and ask the questions, if the dams came out, what would the consequences be and how would you address uh, the needs of the stakeholders and the impacts that it would have on those stakeholders? So we've done a lot of, a lot of research on this. Uh, you know, we looked at all sorts of different ways to try to save salmon. Uh, try to recover the salmon runs in Idaho. And unfortunately, over the years, what we've been doing is managing the steady decline of salmon to where they're eventually going to go extinct if we don't do something along these lines. Uh, we came to, the, we looked at ways that, that you might be able to recover salmon without removing dams. Couldn't find an alternative that would work. The reality is, is that we tried everything else. Uh, and we came down to the conclusion, and, and most fish biologists would agree with us, that if you're going to recover salmon, uh, you're going to have to remove the dams. So that has consequences. And what this proposal does, and it's the first time that anybody has done this, it, it looks at the, the fact that the dams have a value. And how are you going to compensate for that value if you remove the dams? By, as I said, uh, by uh, restoring uh, the, the uh, uh, making the, the stakeholders whole, whether it's agriculture, uh, and if you look at this proposal, agriculture benefits from this greatly, uh, re re relieves them of the lawsuits, provides certainty uh, for them in the future. Uh, it, pro it provides for replacing the energy. These dams produce 3,000 megawatts of power. Uh, it ends the salmon wars that have been going on in the West for the last 30 or 40 years. That's a, that is a very complex and comprehensive uh, uh, proposal, uh, which makes it that much more difficult. You know, this is, as you said, a, a big ask, at least $33.5 billion. And yeah. that's an expensive gamble when you're trying to not only save the salmon, but also offset some of the consequences of removing the dams with agriculture, with industry, yeah. with power. Yeah. How sure are you that those investments will work when it comes to water storage, when it comes to replacing the hydropower? 
Well, what the $33.5 billion, the way we came up with that is, uh, that's the value of the dams if you look at trying to make the stakeholders whole. It'll take you about $33.5 million. Uh, billion. Uh, and, you know, it is, it is uh, I would like to tell you that I'm certain that if we do this and implement this, the salmon would be recovered. I can't do that. Uh, it's a complex biological system and certainty is not, uh, not in the cards, but it's the best chance we have of uh, recovering and restoring uh, the environment in the Pacific Northwest and giving, giving salmon a chance to, to uh, uh, succeed and, and recover. Are you anticipating job losses in the short term because of those dam removals? No, we're not. Uh, if you look at this, dam removal doesn't start until 2030. That's nine years from now. Uh, and then half of them come out in 2030, the other half in 2031, uh, I believe it is. Uh, we would have to replace the power before then. Uh, and we do that by, uh, by giving the Bonneville Power Administration uh, the resources that they would need to replace the power. We also uh, take away the lawsuits in that we relicense all of the dams that are more than five megawatts in power. Uh, we relicense them for the next 35 to 50 years, depending on when their licenses come due. That is a big deal for power, uh, the power companies and so forth. So we would have to replace that uh, beforehand and we would have to implement many of these other programs before uh, you actually started removing the dams. You know, I'm, I'm curious about the uh, balance of power, if you will, here. Um, yeah. You know, you've mentioned poor ocean conditions and climate change increasing the water temperatures of the uh, rivers and reservoirs, which also has a negative impact on salmon. Without the relatively clean hydropower that's currently provided by the dams, uh, you know, what climate considerations should be taken when you are removing a clean power source? Well, you can replace that with other clean power sources. You can you can put, replace it with pump storage. You can replace it with small modular reactors. You can replace it by making the dams that will remain uh, more efficient in their power production. Uh, I'm not the energy expert in the world, but I know the Bonneville Power Administration is. And, and replacing the energy is actually not the most difficult part of this whole whole uh, process. Uh, replacing the, the uh, barging that occurs from Lewiston to, to the Tri-Cities uh, that gets our grain down the, the river at a cheaper cost than up by rail or truck uh, is more problematic and more difficult to do. But that's one of the things we've been working on and giving the resources to our agricultural producers to design their own system of how they want to get, uh, how they want to get grain down the, down the river and enhancing the barging from the Tri-Cities down to the end of, uh, of uh, the Columbia to the uh, Pacific Ocean. But, you know, everybody can point to, the, well, let me put it this way. There are many factors that affect salmon recovery. Ocean conditions is one of them. Water temperatures, uh, temperature is one of them. Predators is one of them. Dams are one of them. And everybody has the ability to point to something to say, no, that's the cause of it. So let's address that. You know, and we've done that for 40 years. Ocean conditions are bad right now for salmon. Uh, we have the Pacific decadial uh, oscillation that occurs. And that happens every 30 to 40 years where salmon runs go down in the Pacific Northwest and then they come back up as ocean conditions change. But you can always point to that and say, well, it's ocean conditions. We can't do anything about that. So let's just throw, our, throw up our hands and not worry about it. Uh, it is a combination of all of those things. Dams are the biggest factor. Uh, a salmon coming from the high mountain, clean water habitats of Idaho uh, 
going to the Pacific Ocean has to cross eight dams. It takes three times as long for a juvenile salmon to get uh, from Idaho to the Pacific Ocean that, than it used to when we had a free-running river. The reality is we don't have a free-running river anymore. What we've got is a series of pools, slack water pools behind dams. Uh, that means that it takes longer to get to the ocean. It means the water temperatures are higher. They're more susceptible to, uh, to predators uh, in that uh, case. And we lose about 15 to, uh, 10 to 15% of the juveniles uh, die every time they have to go through the turbines of a, of a dam and stuff. When you times that by eight dams that they have to go through, it's just an unsustainable situation. Now, one of the other parts of your proposal is a 35-year mor moratorium on litigation. How does that work? And is there any precedent for this in other pieces of congressional legislation? I don't know if there's any precedent of it. But we can cer certainly legislate it that we, we exempt uh, those dams that we relicense those, those uh, remaining dams for 35 to 50 years, and they won't be susceptible to litigation under the Clean Water Act, uh, under the Endangered Species Act, uh, so that it provides some certainty. And frankly, the people that uh, and organizations that have been the most active in pursuing litigation uh, have agreed to that and think that's a good move uh, because they actually believe, and I and I agree with them that. Uh, we will see uh, salmon return to Idaho and, and uh, remove the greatest barrier to their, to their uh, uh, coming back by removing the dams. You know, that's a snapshot in time right now, though, with the groups that are currently engaged in litigation. And 35 years is a long time. So what if in 20 years another group comes along and says, you know what, I see major problems with this. Will they have the ability to sue? not under the Clean Water Act or under the Endangered Species Act. You know, I also have to ask, there are so many regions that this affects um, Eastern yeah. Washington and Idaho's first congressional district. Why is this proposal coming from the congressman from Idaho's second congressional district? Well, we started looking at uh, looking, you know, three years ago uh, about the impacts of, uh, of the dams on salmon recovery. And most of the uh, high altitude, clear water uh, habitat from the salmon is actually in the second congressional district. It's up in the Stanley Basin with Marsh Creek and Loon Creek and the other places. Uh, so it affects uh, my district, the second district. Obviously, it affects uh, the first district and and uh, eastern Washington. Uh, so, you know, we're getting the reaction kind of what we expected uh, from groups. There's concern. Uh, there are there's opposition all of that kind of stuff. What we want people to sit back and look at is, okay, this is a serious proposal to recover salmon. You gotta ask yourself one question. Do you really wanna recover salmon or do you wanna let them go extinct? That's the really, that's the decision we have to make. Uh, because as I said, we've just been managing salmon for extinction. Uh, and and uh, I think we ought to recover salmon. They're the most iconic species in the Pacific Northwest. But in doing that, we have to provide some certainty for the stakeholders uh, in this uh, going forward. You know, this proposal comes in the aftermath of a bruising impeachment debate that wasn't just bipartisan. It it split, or rather partisan, it, it split your own party as well. Yeah. And I read one reaction to your proposal that said that regional bipartisanship is out of style right now. So in this climate, realistically, how are you going to get this done? Well, what we're looking at uh, is is uh, 
hoping that people will sit back and take a look at this. I, I understand first reactions, uh, gut reactions that come when you when you see something, uh, but they will sit back and look at the full proposal and what the benefits are uh, in creating that certainty that's necessary, uh, particularly for agriculture, uh, getting rid of the salmon lawsuits and so forth, and then work uh, with a delegation, the governors of the Pacific Northwest uh, and uh, and the tribes uh, to try to, to try to implement this, uh, we are looking at the the Biden administration is putting together a uh, a uh, infrastructure and jobs package, which I haven't seen yet exactly what they're going to propose, but they tell me it's upwards of about two trillion dollars. Uh, so thirty five, thirty three billion dollars uh, would be a little less than two percent of the entire package. Is that too much to ask for the Pacific Northwest region uh, to redo our economy and, uh, and the infrastructure of our, of our economy? I don't think so. So we hope to work it into a package like that. We've been in touch with uh, Senator Wyden over in the, the uh, uh, that's chairman of the uh, Finance Committee in the Senate. Uh, I know that they have been in touch with uh, the Biden administration. Uh, and then we've talked with uh, with almost all of the, the representatives of the region. Uh, and there's, you know, a kind of a quiet pause <laughs> for most people that want to consider it uh, and see what the reaction is in the public before they decide whether they're going to oppose it or support it or be helpful in trying to get this done. Do you have a firm answer on whether or not Russ Fulcher will support this proposal? You know, we've briefed Russ. Uh, he represents the first district, as you well know. Uh, and, uh, he's, he, I understand his concerns, uh, for his constituents and, uh, Lewiston and so forth. Uh, I think if we can get groups and organizations supportive of this or supportive of moving in this direction, uh, that, uh, you know, we'll let Russ do what he has, he represents his constituents and, and that's all I can expect him to do. You also mentioned the tribes, and of course, different tribes have different concerns. Are they on the same page when it comes to this proposal? All of the tribes that we've talked to, and I met the other day uh, on a Zoom call with uh, with the 16 tribes in the Pacific Northwest, uh, they're very supportive of what we're doing. Most of them put out press releases supporting the, the concept of, uh, of what we're doing. You mentioned the Biden administration. How different would the timing of this have been had President Trump won a second term? Well, I don't know that the timing would have been uh, been different. Uh, we were getting ready to release this regardless of who won the, won the election and so forth. And let me emphasize, what this is is a concept. And we are, we are putting it out there and we, are, we want people to comment on it and to tell us if they have better ideas, uh, things that we could do differently or, or uh, how we can address some of the impacts and stuff. And what we're looking for right now is the response uh, of people so that we can take that into consideration as we start drafting legislation uh, to enact it. How are discussions with the Biden administration going? Are you getting any sort of feedback from them yet? I haven't had any contact yet with the Biden administration. They have other things on their on their mind right now. But as they work uh, toward doing a job, right now they're working on a COVID relief uh, package. Uh, when they start working on jobs and infrastructure uh, package, uh, we'll be in contact with them. Oh, you've been critical of the Speaker of the House in the past. I think you've called her crazy uh, in one interview. <laughs> 
Are you in a place to approach the Democratic majority with such an expensive piece of legislation? I have a good relationship with uh, with the speaker and the majority leader. In fact, one of my best friends in Congress is uh, Steny Hoyer, the the majority leader right now. And I get along well with all the all the Democrats on the other side of the aisle. Uh, in spite of what you see on TV and some of the rhetoric that goes out, some of the rhetoric from me, unfortunately, but uh, some of the rhetoric that goes out, uh, we actually get along pretty well on our committees when we sit and work together. And, and uh, uh, we're trying to do that. All right, Congressman Mike Simpson, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for watching. We have much more online. Follow our work throughout the week on the Idaho Report's social media sites. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho by the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.